The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. There's a crisis at our border caused by this administration's policy. Title 42 uh, should be lifted. The Department of Homeland Security has projected that there could be an increase in people coming to the border. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. Ukraine clearly believes that it can win. And so does everyone here. There was a level of confidence that was exuded both by Secretaries Austin as well as Blinken. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The U.S. claps back at Russia after Moscow warns again of a possible nuclear war. World War III. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with the latest on the war in Ukraine and unique insights today from a voice of experience. We'll be talking momentarily with John Herbst, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and senior director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Later, the White House rolls out a new plan for the southern border, a six-point plan, Biden versus Texas, at the same time goes before the Supreme Court. We'll talk about it with Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr with arguments for and against the remain in Mexico policy today. Analysis from our signature panel. Glad to say we have Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with us to help make sense of everything this hour and some big issues to talk about. First, we open the morning with word that Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, had sat for a state TV interview and he made news. Uh, We've heard this before, but warning of a serious risk of nuclear war, saying, quote, the danger is serious, even invoking the Cuban Missile Crisis, saying back then Moscow and Washington understood the rules of conduct. But now he says there are few rules left. And isn't that right? Reaction uh, from the administration came initially from the secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin in Germany, uh, Ramstein Air Base. He's hosting Military leaders there, this big confab, 40 countries represented, a pretty good show of solidarity. But listen to how he tries to respond without escalating. Here's Secretary Austin. Rattling of saber, sabers and, and uh, you know, dangerous rhetoric is clearly unhelpful and something that uh, we won't engage in. Nobody uh, wants to see a nuclear war happen. happen. It's a war that, you know, where, where all sides lose. State Department spokesman Ned Price uh, called Lavrov's remarks irresponsible and a clear attempt to distract from Russia's failure in Ukraine. A little bit, a little bit heavier. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in Washington. You remember he was in Kiev just two days ago with Secretary Austin. And he's still looking forward to returning American diplomats to Ukraine as soon as next week. He testified today before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Here's Secretary Blinken. We will... We have to continue to drive that diplomacy forward to seize what I believe are strategic opportunities, as well as address risks presented by Russia's overreach as countries are reconsidering their policies, their priorities, their relationships. Really caught my eye with Blinken adding and questioning the U.S. would not stand in the way, he says, of Ukraine becoming a so-called neutral nation. 
this isn't necessarily new, but it's been a while. You know, a country that never joins NATO, basically. If he says that's what Kiev chooses, of course, we're going to go along with it. And that's where we begin our conversation today with John Herbst. He served as the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 2003 to 2006 and Uzbekistan before that. Now, senior director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Ambassador, welcome. It's great to have you. The mixed messages that we're hearing from Moscow are really something. Weeks after Putin said talks had reached a dead end. Today, Sergei Lavrov seems to be blaming the U.S. for not taking negotiations seriously, even as he warns again of a possible nuclear war. When you put this all together, does Russia believe it is losing? Um, Russia is losing. I think many smart people in Moscow understand this. I'm not sure that Putin understands this. How about Sergei Lavrov? You know, he, he he's said to not even be in the inner circle, even as he speaks for Vladimir Putin. But he's looking at the Western news, Ambassador. Lavrov is not in the inner circle. He is a very crafty man. And you might say at the center of his craft is not getting himself on the bad side of the Russian strongman, meaning Putin. Why drop the nuclear threat again? Well, the Russians have had some success by threatening with nukes. I mean, several times, I'm sad to say, early in this crisis, before the Russians launched this new offensive and since, the administration has self-deterred, saying it does not want to wind up in a nuclear holocaust. We, we dismissed the notion of a no-fly zone. We dismissed the notion of a humanitarian corridor. We even dismissed the notion of sending MiG fighters to Ukraine because it would be considered escalatory by Putin. Right. So they've allowed Putin to push us around a little bit. But thank goodness, as your, as your reporter noted, Austin gave it the whole hum today, which we should have given it in the past. No kidding. So you, you just the idea is I heard the message, but we're not going to be escalating it. We're not going to see you and raise you when it comes to a nuclear conflict. Correct. And we're not going to be intimidated by you because in the past there has been some successful intimidation by Mr. Putin. Yeah. Well, you seem to be a little upset about that. Maybe that's not the right word, but concerned about that from the perspective of Ukraine. You're feeling for the leadership right now. Are they not getting enough from the U.S.? Um. The administration's position, which has been um, consistently slow or hesitant and timid, is, has been getting better. The two aid packages, one announced two weeks ago, the other announced last week, was yeah. a good step in the right direction. This meeting that Austin and Millie hosted in Ramstein, pulling in the allies, was a good thing. But we're still not sending some of the weapon systems that Ukraine desperately needs. Which Those ones? Those big planes that I mentioned. Okay. The um, Suhoi bombers. Uh, longer-range drones. We need to give Ukraine and um, tanks. We need to give Ukraine the capability to offset Moscow's large advantage in an open battle, which is what they will conduct in the east of Ukraine. Yes. So you're talking to President Biden tomorrow, Ambassador. You have an appointment in the Oval Office. You need to tell him what they need when he makes the supplemental request to Congress this week. How many billions are we talking about? How, or is it not well, about dollars? Is it about actual weapon systems that we should be more specific about? He knows what they, needs because they need because the Ukrainians have been asking for it for six or eight weeks. Many in Congress know this as well. This does involve billions of dollars. We've already committed that. Yeah. This involves a steady supply of ammunition. But keep in mind, Putin's objectives go beyond Ukraine. He will go after our Baltic NATO allies if he wins in Ukraine. That will be far more expensive, and that will cost more American lives if we have to defend our Baltic allies against Russian troops. Therefore, give Ukraine the weapons so they themselves defeat Putin. Have we sent enough 
to the Eastern Front, if if you will, of, of NATO, our Eastern European allies like Poland, uh, Romania, and so forth? Or, or do we need to send more American troops there for the, for the, uh, the scenario that you just outlined? I give Biden credit for responding also a little bit late, but not nearly as late as uh, with the weapons supply and strengthening our forces in the, uh, among the Eastern NATO allies. They, did, they began to do that in um, the middle of January. They've strengthened that since. So they've done that, I'd say, I'd give them a B-plus to an A-minus for that. On the weapons supply, they've got a gentleman's C. I'd like to see it get better. Russia cut the gas to Poland and Bulgaria, Ambassador. What does that tell us about what else Vladimir Putin's capable of? Well, he has basically two instruments of leverage. One are his nuclear, the nuclear program, which only works if we are frightened and self-deterred by it, because we have nukes too. And the other concerns oil and gas. So he can stop the supply, but keep in mind, he needs Western dollars as much as, sadly, our European allies need his oil and gas. But Poland, Poland's not the issue. Poland can live without Russian gas and oil. Unfortunately, Germany seems to be able, unable to break the habit at the moment, although I think they're they're taking strides to break it, say, within nine to 12 months. Well, you know, Poland, how much does it concern you, though, about Putin's eyes on Poland, knowing that that's where a lot of important supply lines are going in terms of weapons entering Ukraine, a lot of refugees going out. And you've got American journalists dancing around Lviv. I realize it's a dangerous place, but there's a lot of activity there uh, that has Vladimir Putin's attention. Would it not make you nervous to be in Poland right now? They're, they're, they're what, 40 miles away in Lviv? Look, um, I think it's unlikely, not impossible, that Moscow would strike Poland. They are not able to achieve their objectives in Ukraine. Why risk some stronger response from NATO? But you can't rule it out. You can't rule out a quote-unquote accidental Russian missile arriving somehow in Poland, accidental on purpose maybe, to test the alliance. But if if our leadership is sound, we've already discussed this possibility within NATO, and we have in mind a strong response. I say if, 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 in fact, our leadership on this is sound. I don't know the answer to that. I know what I hope. We're preparing for a massive battle in the East, which speaks to the weapon systems you say that Ukraine needs. As that takes place, do you also support the Blinken vision of of restoring a diplomatic presence, not just in the country, but in Kiev? Of course. Look, now I was a diplomat for 31 years. Diplomacy can also be risky at times, I mean, for its practitioners. Um, In the the mid-'80s, uh, when you had the Iran-Iraq war, not the one that we were involved in, yeah. we had diplomats in Baghdad when the Iranians were sending Scud missiles into Baghdad. We did not pull them out. At some point in the late 80s and the early 90s, this was when I was in the Foreign Service, we became truly risk-averse. Um, we need to understand that there are times when American national interests require our diplomats to be a forward presence, and this is one of those times. Some would suggest if it were not for Benghazi, we, we would have stayed. Well, ben, you know, it's funny. Benghazi was a mistake to put our, our ambassador there in that facility. But, uh, and then, of course, he died tragically. Yeah. Uh, but there are other risks that we can and should take, which we have not. And this one is, is a reasonable risk. John Herbst, does this end with Ukraine as a so-called neutral country, never to join NATO? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I believe this will end with Ukraine being a truly sovereign country, 
controlling most, if not all, of its territory, yeah. and pursuing an independent foreign policy, which might involve neutrality, it might not. I can tell He's you the this. former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Ambassador John Herbst. We do thank you for the insights to get us rolling on the Tuesday edition of Sound On. We'll assemble the panel next. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. A gentleman's sea when it comes to supplying weapons to Ukraine, the grade by John Herbst, the former ambassador to Ukraine, clearly passionate, clearly fired up today and feeling like the U.S. may just now be standing up the way it should be against Russia and providing Ukraine with the support it needs. And that's where we start. With the panel today, Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. Jeannie, if you're the administration listening to that conversation with a man who's actually been there, he was actually representative of the United States and, and got to know the people and the nation of Ukraine on that level, to hear that kind of disappointment in his voice after this many weeks and this many billions of dollars is really something. It is. And and I think the big takeaway in the administration from a conversation like that, and hopefully they're listening, should be that Putin's objectives go further than the Ukraine. And so that's why they have to do everything they can now to stop him in his tracks. And to me, that is a message that has got to be told to the American people to justify the amount of spending and arms. I mean, I thought that when you heard Austin say today that we will move heaven and earth, to make sure Ukraine has what it needs militarily, we have to follow that up by saying why. What is in it for us? And I thought that uh, Ambassador Herbst did a good job of making that case. Rick, I, I feel like the, the narrative is catching up with you a little bit on this, that, that, that after this much time, I'm assuming it's the time, it's the images, that people have started to shift their feelings about the war to become more aggressive, at least on behalf of the Ukrainians, but even advance the conversation more recently to, you know, what happens if this goes outside of the lines? If we don't do this right, this spreads. Sure. I, I think it has a potential spreading even if we do it right, right? I mean, like, Vladimir Putin is not a man who's going to settle for a strip of land in the south and the east of the Ukraine. Uh, it's just not what he is made to be. And, he, and if you follow what he says, his plan is to go much beyond that, right, Re, reconstituting some of the homeland. Uh, and, and obviously Ukraine is the most important part of that, but he does not plan to stop. The, you, you talk to the leaders of the Baltics, and they are under threat every single day. He's attacking them with cyber. Mm -hmm. He's running drills on their border. He's the same kinds of things we saw in Ukraine have been playing out in other parts of that region uh, with these Russian uh, forays into these this space for some time. Believe what Vladimir Putin tells you. Uh, I, I don't really understand why that's even a debate at this point because well, he's so done exactly what he said he was going to do. Need to be part of the, 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 the policy of this administration? Well, I was a big fan of uh, President Biden saying that, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin can't be president. Got a lot of attention. 
read it how you want to. Well, it, it, what got it even most attention is the fact that the White House walked it back within an hour of him yeah, saying it, right. when most people I know think he was actually spot on when he said it. So the, the, the reality is you've got a regime that is threatening nuclear war because they can't fight a good war. And, and so, thank goodness, they're lousy at what they're doing in, in the Ukraine so far. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, we can't be held hostage by this guy. He's he's holding Poland now hostage by turning off their gas. I mean, yeah. this guy is a criminal. It is a move to, to be cutting off the gas. Uh, I realize we're not in the middle of the winter here, Jeannie, but doesn't that say everything you need to know about Vladimir Putin? It does. I mean, I think both that cutting off the gas and the statements about nuclear and the threat of nuclear and the danger yeah. of World War III are all an indication. Well, that are we they closer are... then to a possible nuclear war or is this the same talk that we've been hearing? Uh, you know, I think th to a certain extent, we don't know. I mean, God forbid, you know, Vladimir Putin decides that, you know, he has no other choice. It, you know, it, we can't say whether we're closer, but I do think in that situation, you have to take the threat very real. I mean, there's a school of thought they're talking like this because they sense that there's defeat. But on the other hand, they are a nuclear nuclear nation. They yeah. could use those nuclear weapons. They could use tactical nuclear weapons. And, you know, you can't say what they're going to do because we can't get in his head. But then, Rick, I turn to the Washington Post and I see this uh, headline that I mentioned at the top of the hour. Biden opened to Ukraine becoming neutral in peace deal. How are we talking about a peace deal right now? And weeks ago, Vladimir Putin said the negotiations had reached a dead end. And, and is a neutral Ukraine just another half measure? Well, you, first of all, you always have to be open to peace, right? I mean, the, the idea is for doing everything you can to keep Russians from killing Ukrainians. And peace has to be a component of that. Now, you know, there are many of us who don't believe Vladimir Putin has any interest in peace. Yeah. But but echoing that out there is does no harm to the ability of the Ukrainians to fight back right now. And at the same time, if there is an opening for peace, you want to have that. And, and even uh, President Zelensky has said that he expects Ukraine to be an independent nation. Uh, he's, I, my suspicion is if he could get his country back and get the Russian troops out of his borders all the way through all the sovereign borders that Ukraine has, he would accept being independent, not having to be a member of NATO. Um, and so, so, you know, who knows how all that's going to play out. But I don't, I don't think there's a problem with having a peace initiative while yeah. the fighting's going on. Because at some point you hope that that's where you go and not more saber-rattling around nuclear weapons. A lot more to follow with Rick and Jeannie, as always, our Bloomberg Sound on Signature panel for the hour here as we turn to another remarkable story from inside the Beltway today. The Supreme Court questioning the Biden administration's bid to end the Remain in Mexico policy. We check the border coming up with Supreme Court reporter Greg Store, and we'll check markets for you on the way if you dare. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. As we turn to what's going on at the border and a pretty remarkable set of headlines today, I'll try to walk you through them. Biden unveils border plan details after Democrat defections. The headline on the terminal with the administration today sharing details of well, it's a six-point plan. It focuses on speeding up migrant processing and targeting smugglers, largely reflecting actions. As I read on the terminal, the Department of Homeland Security has already outlined, but it includes more specifics. If you kind of pick through this, not a lot of it sounds terribly new. Now, this, of course, just comes a day after we talked about Title 42. The policy is set to lift by May 23rd. But that timeline may be thrown off, they say, 
by legal action. Basically extending it beyond May 23rd. We're just waiting for the word on that. And that brings us to the Supreme Court now. Questioning President Biden's effort to rescind his predecessor's remain in Mexico policy. Some call it the stay in Mexico policy. Greg Storr writing about it on the terminal. It has forced tens of thousands of asylum seekers to stay south of the border. We've talked about this. You've heard Jen Psaki talk about it from the briefing room here. It is a COVID policy, not an immigration policy, and it's set to come down for that reason. Or is it going to come down? Things get to be a little bit interesting here. The COVID policy is the one we're talking about with Title 42, the Remain in Mexico policy goes back uh, before that. His predecessor's policy that, again, has people really up in arms on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I want to hear from uh, Eric Schmidt, was it, who had more on this, one of the uh, attorneys general involved in the case. Here he is. The fentanyl, the human trafficking, the drug trafficking, it doesn't stop in El Paso. It doesn't stop in McAllen. It ends up in Kansas City and in St. Louis and Columbia and in Columbus, Ohio and in Denver. Forgive me, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, his state was one of two on the case, argued before the court. Now, to be clear, the Biden administration and other critics of the program say it's un-American. They don't want this in place anymore and inhumane for those who are legitimately trying to seek asylum. That's where we begin with Greg Storr to help us understand more about it. Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter. I'm trying to walk through these headlines, Greg. I even confused myself for a moment here. But coming on the heels of the Title 42, uh, well, sort of ruling or, or announcement of a pre-announcement of a ruling, this argument today before the Supreme Court poses a much more important long-term impact for our southern border, does it not? Uh, it certainly will have a long-term impact, yes, because it goes to just how much discretion the uh, federal government, the Department of Homeland Security, has over what happens at the border. The uh, question is, when the Trump administration decided a few years ago that we're going to make asylum applicants wait in Mexico while their applications are being processed, the, the question is, now that the Biden administration has come along and said, that's not the policy we want, can the Biden administration end that? And a federal district judge and a federal appeals court said, no, you can't, at least not with the explanation you've given so far. You have to look at it more closely, and, and potentially you can't do it at all. Texas and Missouri, uh, the, the states involved here, say the program's legally required, given the number of asylum seekers, as you write, far outstrips detention capacity. And boy, when you look at the plan the administration rolled out today, I know you've been focused on this case, but they're not talking about increasing capacity by that much. It's another tented structure processing facility that I believe would increase from 13,000 to 18,000, the number who could come across the border uh, uh, per day. Uh, These states are making a case that is pretty well articulated, Greg. Yeah, and nobody disputes that there's not enough detention capacity. I'll just throw some numbers at you that came up in court today. Uh, So government agents in March alone uh, encountered uh, more than 200,000 people trying to cross the border. Uh, the federal government has detention space for about 32,000. That, that's what the Solicitor General said in court today. And you can just imagine as those numbers build up at month after month, uh, there's just not space to put them. And so that's really what this, this case is about. What do you do with the people you don't have a place to, to, to put? Uh, 
federal immigration law says uh, that people who are applying for asylum shall be detained. It's a mandate. It makes it sound like it's mandatory. They have to detain yeah. them. And it also says, but on a case-by-case basis, you can uh, let people uh, go into the U.S. and you know, they'll come back for their asylum hearings, or you can send them back to the, the country they came from, in this case, Mexico. And so this argument today was all about how you make all those pieces fit together at this time when there's not nearly enough capacity to, to detain people. It's not even close, and apparently we won't have that anytime soon. Uh, Greg, you, you remind us the administration suspended the policy the day of the inauguration, formally rescinded it June 1st. What potentially happens from here? Well, so they, form, they formally rescinded it, and then a judge, a federal district judge, said, no, you have to put it back in place, and that and that went up to the Supreme Court in an earlier round on an mm-hmm. emergency basis, and the Supreme Court said, we're not going to block that order. So what it meant was the Biden administration had to negotiate with Mexico to restart this program. And so the program is now up and running again, and the Biden administration is still arguing we ought to be able to end this program because yeah. we don't think it's a good policy decision given the, the horrible conditions at these places. Where well, a better way to ask is that then in, in our remaining 30 seconds, what, what is next for the administration, though? Can they, can they rescind it again? Uh, it depends on what the Supreme Court says. That's what so it will come down to this ruling. And it's going to be, I imagine, months, Greg, right? Uh, Probably the end of June, yes. Greg Storr knows how to wait for word from the Supreme Court. It's great to have you, as always, Greg Bloomberg, Supreme Court reporter, walking us through an important argument that's happening right now and not getting nearly enough attention as media focuses largely on Title 42. We'll reassemble the panel next. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. As we carry our conversation about the border and the many headlines springing from this debate to our panel, Rick and Jeannie are back with us on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Glad you came along. These market updates are awfully difficult and it has been a time here. It's been a time in politics as well. Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Jeannie Shanzano with us here as President Biden faces uh, some very difficult days potentially at the border. Around this time, guys, we were talking about Title 42 around this time yesterday. When you add the Remain in Mexico a policy that's being argued before the Supreme Court, it's giving a lot of fodder to a lot of the administration's critics here. And I was just blown away to see uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, down along the border. Rick, he took a, a group of, of Republican members of the House to the southern border as frequently as done, right? It makes great optics. You're standing there in front of the river. Uh, you're, you're walking through the, the, the rough, talking to a reporter about what's happening here. In this particular case, though, the questions were all geared toward his recent comments about Donald Trump because it was the first time that we've uh, that we've seen him. But listen to the artful nature here. I'm assuming you would 
you would refer to it as such, the way he steers these questions about his tape. Remember the New York Times tape where he's talking about Donald Trump resigning after January 6th and swings it back to the ultimate talking point, which is the border. Listen to this. I'll give you a couple of tapes. Here's the first one on Fox News of Kevin McCarthy at the at the border. Look, I never told the president to resign. It was a conversation that we had about scenarios going forward. But that's not really what critical happened 15 months ago. What's happening is what's happening on this border right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the reporter comes back around. The river's flowing behind him. You can see Texas in the distance. Congressman, again, this situation uh, at the border here. Uh, is one thing, but but he's gonna. You'll hear the question. Did did you actually lie about what you said in on that tape? Here he is. You had said the New York Times reporting on it was quote false and wrong. Then the tape came out. Did you lie? No, because what was brought to me is said that I called the president to say that um, that uh, to resign. I never called the president to say resign. He and I have a very good relationship as we go through. But what really what? needs to happen here is we're watching what's happening in this country, a border that's not secure. There it is. This, by the way, I could play several more of those for you. Uh, artful, Rick, or does it say more about the, the situation at the border as a talking point? First of all, the border is uh, always a good place to go when you're trying to avoid Washington. And he is desperate to avoid Washington right now. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and likely so, because he's been caught in a ball-faced lie. Uh, and he can't spin his way out of it. No one's going to buy it. Not even a Fox News reporter was going to go down with the ship on that one. And, and so uh, he, he's going to have to just pay the piper for a while. I mean, he's lucky that Trump has given him a buy. He doesn't have that flying over his head every day. And yet um, the, the press corps has a duty to report. They have to ask him a you know, specific question. And, he, and, and we used to have this saying on the McCain campaign, spinning is lying. Well, he's, he's got a full chest of lie going on that's, right now. That's pretty tough if we apply it to this scenario here, Jeannie. But the fact of the matter is, yes, we're interested in the first part of his answer, but a lot of people were more interested in the second part. The, but what happened 15 months ago here at the border? That's right. And, you know, it, it's it's stunning. You know, here is somebody who, you know, refuses to go along with impeaching the president for his role on January 6th. And yet he's talking about impeaching the, the, the head of Homeland Security for dereliction of duty. It's mind numbing as he tries to change the conversation. You know, there is no question. Kevin McCarthy is right. Borders need to be secure. They need to be protected. But the reality is the Republicans have offered absolutely nothing but fear when it comes mm -hmm. to the border. This is a problem that has vexed presidents going all the way back to George W. Bush, if not before. They have no plan to do it, and neither does the Biden administration. Let's be clear on that. This is an absolutely humanitarian disaster. Americans deserve better, but they're not going to get it. We talked about Title 42 yesterday. When it comes to remain in Mexico, this case that we talked to Greg Storr that's being argued before the Supreme Court, if it goes away again, as the Biden administration is asking Rick, does that not add much more liability here, political liability in a midterm cycle? Oh, sure. I mean, these are all campaign promises that he probably shouldn't have made to begin with, and now he feels compelled to implement, and even the courts won't let him implement them. And, and, and he ought to listen to the communities on the border who have the biggest impact with all these uh, immigrants coming, migrants coming across the border. And yet 
it's almost like he's at war with the border states. And these are critical states for the future Democratic uh, presidential campaigns in the future and also in some key Senate races. So he's really misjudging, I think, the demand for this kind of action without, as Jeannie was saying, a, a plan to absorb it. Mm-hmm. He's going to have 200,000 a month potentially of migrants that get paroled into the United States Basically, hey, stay in touch with us. We'll bring up your asylum case sometime in the future. And that could be a million people by the end of the next six months. Uh, what is What explanation are we going to give the American public about what we're doing to keep control of that situation and not just let these folks walk into the United States and, and, and start a, a new life without any kind of tracking? So, Jeannie, will the courts save the administration from this debate between now and November? You know, I think they've done them a, a little bit of a favor by giving them time. But, you know, one of the, the crazy things about this story is even though the judiciary ordered them to keep the remain in Mexico policy, when you look at the numbers, Trump was sending about 70,000 asylum seekers back. The Biden administration, by some counts, 410. So they really have not been listening. You know, courts can order things. They have no executive power, so they can't execute those things. So there's a question about them listening. And, you know, the reality is, in, in if you step back, Title 42 probably should be removed. Congress should have been the one to put that in, a, in place. That's not something that is something the executive should be doing. You know, in regular order of things, that's a congressional role. And then to Rick's point, what do you do with those 200,000? You either use the, the, the remain in Mexico policy or you have another policy to curb that. Neither of those things are in place. And so we are left with this enormous humanitarian disaster on top of a political problem months away from a midterm. Great analysis from Rick and Jeannie as we turn to another, I won't say policy, although I suppose it is, but another Trump leftover that the Biden administration is trying to do away with and is in fact doing away with. As I find the headline in the Washington Post Trump saved this old-fashioned light bulb. Biden's now phasing it out. You remember this. It was a big hit, right, on the road show. Donald Trump, the stump. Remember? The light bulb. People said, what's with the light bulb? I said, here's the story. And I looked at it. The bulb that we're being forced to use, number one to me, most importantly, the light's no good. I always look orange. And so do you. The light bulb. Uh, They got rid of the uh, light bulb that people got used to. The new bulb is many times more expensive. And I hate to say it, it doesn't make you look as good. Of course, being a vain person, that's very important to me. It's like, it gives you an orange look. I don't want an orange look. (laughs) Has anyone noticed that? (laughs) Somebody said, oh, sir, don't mention the light bulb. (laughs) So the new light bulb costs you five times as much, and it makes you look orange. And I was more interested in the orange than I was in the cost. If you didn't remember actually living through that, you'd think you were listening to like an HBO special, right? It's the the Donald Trump, the first primetime special. No, this was our reality for some time. And I've got to tell you, the Energy Department finalized two rules just yesterday requiring manufacturers to sell energy-efficient light bulbs, effectively putting, as the Washington Post writes, a sell-by date on the older, inefficient ones that some people I know have been stocking in their closets this whole time. 
good politics, Rick Davis, make people buy the new bulbs? Well, we, we have to grow up at some point and start wearing pants. And so I think that, that, that you know, you, you've got a choice whether you want to continue to just burn electricity. Lighting accounts for almost 40 percent of your electric bill. And, 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 you know, there are efficient options that uh, really don't burn hardly any energy at all and last a heck of a lot longer. So at some point, I think, you know, the government may be right every now and then. And this is one area that, uh, that I'd say they have. Now, now, I have to also disclose that I ran an LED lighting business for quite some time. So <laughs> I am, I'm a sucker for this one. <laughs> well, do they make you really orange, Jeannie? I never noticed that before Donald Trump said it. You know, not me personally, they don't, Joe, Joe Matthew, okay. but I will tell you, I'm surprised that Rick is not more sensitive to Donald Trump's concern about his orange color <laughs> and allowing him to stock up on those lights so he can, you know, remain, I don't know, non-orange. What's the opposite of that? Um, <laughs> you know, it's obviously good policy, um, but, you know, it's just uh, you, you brought me back because between yesterday with the water and today with the light bulbs, I'm having flashbacks here to all this entertainment with Donald Trump. <laughs> it's I'll tell you what, uh, it was it was quite the trip going back through some of those speeches. Boy, I don't know. Donald Trump says these make you look orange. Uh, Rick, uh, maybe he hasn't checked the other bulbs. Or maybe he just hasn't looked in the mirror lately. <laughs> That's, you know, kind of, I guess, the point. Great to spend time with Rick and Jeannie, our signature panel here on Sound On. That was the revelation, the breakthrough, when he realized all the bulbs made him look orange. I'll meet you back here tomorrow on the fastest hour in politics. We'll check the markets coming up as well. And thanks to everyone for jumping in today. Fascinating conversation. John Herbst, the former ambassador, Greg Storr, our Supreme Court reporter, and of course, the panel. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.